Good morning, friends. Good morning to you here in the sanctuary and those of you joining us through the wonderful means of digital technology. Somebody asked me this week, what were you doing with your phone last Sunday morning? Well, when the Facebook program doesn't go live when it's supposed to, I get texts from people. We can't see you. We can't hear you. And so uh, thanks to our technology team and all that they do, it's amazing the reach of the Word of God in this season of this church locally and globally. So thanks be to God. And let me, let me add my appreciation to Pastor Brad's comments. We are thankful for God's provision in all the way that God provides. Thankful for you in all the way that God provides through you. So thank you for your generosity, your attention to the needs of the church. I want to draw your attention just for a moment before I begin the message to a wonderful growth opportunity. As we are expanding programming, as we continue to lean into sort of post-pandemic life together, we're seeing a growth in a couple of our ministries, particularly in children and student ministries. Great things are happening in those two departments. And we say thanks be to God, thanks to uh, the pastors who are leading that work, Pastor Melissa Wadi over here, and uh, Pastor Jasmine Brenneman, who's downstairs with the children in this hour. They're doing great, great work. Could I just say to you, they need some of us to come alongside of them, not simply as volunteers, but as participants in building relationships that matter. I think we can all agree that much of what happens in the kingdom of God happens out of relationship. And I think about when I was a child growing up in the church, my Sunday school teachers, my youth leaders, who were with us on the journey of life and who built relationship and who left the imprints of their fingerprints upon my heart because they were part of my life. And so this morning, I want to invite you all, because I don't know how God will move, all to consider prayerfully being a participant in one of those ministries to walk alongside, to build relationships with children. Our society and culture has sort of devolved into a space where we have a tendency to ask for one-time volunteer opportunities. And I appreciate the convenience of that, but it doesn't serve our children and our students well in terms of people who walk along and experience life with them and can share life wisdom with them and godly life. So my prayer is that God will call some of us to volunteer for stretches of time rather than just a Sunday and be a relationship participant in the work of God's spirit in the lives of these children. Amen? That makes sense? And I recognize that it may mean that you may need to step out of your Sunday school class for a few months. They'll still be there. You can still go to their gatherings. They won't blacklist you. 
but to think about the gift of your life to a child that would matter to them. I can think of no greater accolade than for someday for a child to say, so-and-so came and was a part of my life in the third grade, the fourth grade, or the fifth grade, or the sixth or seventh or eighth or ninth or tenth or eleventh or twelfth grade, whatever grade it is. We will train you, we will teach you, we have all the resources, but there is a great need for us to invest in the lives of these children and these students. So will you pray? Would you open your heart and mind to the leading of God? Because if God would call you and lead you there, God will provide for you. Because you are God's provision for a child or a student. And I would say some of it is simply being present. Just go be present. Some of it is administrative. For example, someone to check children in when their parents bring them and help them go downstairs. It just requires being present. So we invite you to consider. There are lots of opportunities with different time commitments, but please give consideration to that because the future is now. And you and I are needed now. So give consideration to it prayerfully, please. And make a contribution to the life of this congregation in a new way. I want to invite you this morning to turn to the book of Malachi. If, you're, if you want to know where Malachi is, open the Bible between the New Testament and the Old Testament and turn left. And you'll find Malachi. Malachi is the 39th book of the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament. And throughout our sermon series, as we have been presenting the idea of the story of God, we have been grasping on to the imagination of God who pursues relationship with the people of God's creation with unconditional love, with a desire to bring hope and grace and mercy into the world. In Genesis, God through creation imagines bringing chaos and imagine bringing order out of chaos. In the covenant with Abraham, God imagines a relationship with Abraham that will bless all people. Recognize with me for a moment that you and I are beneficiaries of the covenant between God and Abraham. In the Israelite exodus from Egypt, God imagines Israel as a nation of priests that will bless the whole world. In the Davidic covenant, God imagines David's lineage to be the source of the Messiah. Throughout the books of the prophets, God's imagination for a holy people persists through acts of provision and protection, blessing, corrective judgment intended as an act of love and redemption to restore God's imagination of relationships rooted in trust. An imagination of relationships rooted also in obedience and love which can bring blessing to all covenant participants. 
as Pastor Brad has helped us understand, every prophetic book ends with promise and hope, and Malachi is no different. The book of Malachi is important to us because it helps us look backward and forward. Chapter 1 of Malachi reminds us of God's love through time, and chapter 3 points us to a coming messenger. And next week, the sermon series, the story, takes us to the New Testament where we will explore the presence of God's covenant in the New Testament. And it is in the book of Malachi we find all three elements of the covenant present, unconditional love, promises of blessing, and opportunities for correction. It would be helpful to our understanding of the prophetic books if we understood correction as an act of love. God's correction as a statement that I care enough about the people of the covenant to correct them, to make them, to help them understand that they have stepped outside the boundaries of the covenant and to restore their relationship with God in a covenantal way. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been disciplined out of love? I think sometimes my father's favorite saying was, this hurts me more than you. I never understood that until I became a parent. And so it is, as we come to the book of Malachi, we find that it is different than most prophetic books because of its timing. The ministry of Malachi occurs about 100 years after the return of the people of Israel to Jerusalem and their land, after the exile to Babylon. It is a contemporary to the work of Ezra and Nehemiah and a contemporary to some of the work of Zechariah and Haggai. The book of Malachi, as we know today, was the last book in the canon of Scripture in the Old Testament. And in the 400 years that follows, there is silence in the canon of Scripture between Malachi and Matthew, between Malachi and the book of Christ. When Malachi's ministry occurs, Judah no longer existed as a national entity. The Israelite people no longer had a national identity. Their territory was now a tiny sub-province of the vast Persian Empire. The population no longer made up a nation, but was rather a congregation of Jews. Their daily existence was a matter of staying alive in the face of hunger and devastation of inflation and hostility from neighbors. And as the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi records a desperate series of disputes between the Israelites and their God, Yahweh. But as the God of the Bible was present and working in the days of Israel's glory, 
God was also at hand and active in her darkest days of trial. And it was the task of these post-exile prophets to declare how God was still present in the midst of this very, very difficult season. Malachi is only four chapters long. You could read it between now and the time I finish this sermon. And it would benefit you if you did. It's really about a 10-minute read, so you'll get it done well before I'm done with this sermon. But there are six topics of dispute between Israel and God. The first one in chapter 1, Israel says to God that you have not loved us. Number 2 in chapter 1, verses 6 through chapter 2, 9, the people refuse to believe that they are despising God. Dispute number three, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, the people have turned against God and their wives. Number four, chapter 2, 17 through chapter 3, verse 5, they charge God with neglecting them and not acting as the God of justice should act in fulfillment of God's covenant duties. Dispute number five, they question how they are robbing God. In chapter six, verses three, chapter three, verses 13 through 18, the people say it is pointless to serve God because the wicked succeed and God does nothing. So Malachi is framed around these six topics of dispute and having heard the charges against God, God responds with evidence to the contrary, and the roles of defendant and plaintiff are reversed. As you read through Malachi, you get this sense that this is almost a courtroom trial. And as you make your way through those four chapters, the people are the plaintiffs, and God is the defendant and on the defensive. But as you read through the book, the tide turns and the people become the defendants, and God becomes the plaintiff, and the jury, or the remnant, in chapter 3, verse 16, agrees that the Lord is innocent of the charges and Israel is guilty. And so it is that Malachi is a book of complaint. But before we shake our head at the idea of complaint, we should recognize that the arc of the story of God across centuries has not softened complaints of humanity against God. We still cry out from our pain or loss, God, how could you do this to me? Or how could a loving God let blank happen? Or weary with our struggles with the ways of the world, we even ask, oh Lord, when will you bring peace on earth? As with the recent killings in Uvalde, Texas and Highland Park, Chicago, the assassination of the former Prime Minister of Japan this past week, or the unprovoked devastation of Ukraine by Russia, we express lament and weariness and complaint when we say and ask, how long, O Lord? There is nothing wrong with complaint in the court of God. 
But there is something inappropriate with complaint when it is inaccurate and it suggests God doesn't care and God is not active. And so it is we find this in Malachi. Israel is tired of waiting for God to act on their behalf and deliver them from their oppressors and the miserable conditions of life because nothing appeared to be happening in her world. Nothing faced Israel but the dailiness of life. Anybody here weary of the dailiness of life? Sometimes the dailiness of life has its own weight and burden. And perhaps discouragement. Obeying God's commandments in the daily relations with neighbors and friends, spending money to pay tithes for the support of the priests, giving up prized lambs and calves to be burned on the altar, learning religious traditions that seemed as distant as the God they portrayed, praying prayers that disappeared unanswered into the blue. It would appear to the Israelites that God apparently was doing nothing at all in Judah's life. And everything seemed to be a mockery of Israel's service to God. I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2, and we'll begin reading at verse 17. But I invite you to keep your Bible open because we're going to read a little bit differently this morning. We're going to read in sections, not just the whole text at one time. And so hear the word of the Lord from Malachi, beginning at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. In the preceding two chapters, the Israelites have attempted to cloud their concerns about justice by suggesting that God is not just and faithful because in their view, the wicked, and the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Thus, they accuse God of injustice regarding their plight. But the reality is, as God points out in verse five, that they are living disobedient lives and they think that does not matter one way or another. Have you ever seen that behavior before? Someone is caught 
and they point the finger at someone else and say, but look what they're doing. They attempt to deflect the argument, and so that's what Israel's doing here by making the accusation that, that the wicked prosper and there's no justice for Israel. And what has happened is, in their accusation, they have corrupted the language of faith. They call good what they should call evil and suggest that God delights in it. Their language reflects a loss of intimacy with God in the context of the covenant. We should perhaps let that statement marinate upon our hearts and souls for a while. God's accusation is that they have corrupted the language of faith. They call good what they should call evil and suggest that God delights in it. Their language reflects a loss of intimacy with God in the context of the covenant. God's further response is a promise. In verses one through four of chapter three, there will come a messenger, the Messiah, who will precede the Lord of the covenant, who will call people into account for their sin, and when the Lord of the covenant returns, there will be judgment. It is of concern to me that sometimes we have soft-pedaled God's judgment. For we know no one good by simply suggesting it doesn't need to be worried about or to be a concern. But the scripture is clear. There is a day of judgment that comes. And the wonder of this second coming of the Lord is that while the Lord comes in judgment, the Lord also comes to save. For the Lord comes to establish justice for all who have broken God's covenant. As illustrated in verse five, such as sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among us of justice. And each of those categories are notable mentions in both Exodus and Deuteronomy. Malachi is reminding the Israelites of their covenantal responsibilities given to them during the Exodus. And by pointing forward, remind us of our covenantal responsibilities, for if you go into the New Testament, as we will shortly, we will find all of those themes from the mouth of Jesus. And Malachi moves on to the next charge. Israel is robbing God. Beginning at verse six of chapter three. I, the Lord, do not change, so, the descent, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees have not kept them, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. If you go back to chapter one, verse two of Malachi, when the charge that God has not loved them and God reminds them in chapter one, verse two, but I have loved you, 
I have loved you all the days from the days of your forefathers, even when you were disobedient to me. I have still loved you. This is a really important passage to us because it is a powerful reminder. It is the powerful reminder of the promise of God's unconditional love. That no matter what condition we find ourselves in, God still loves us. We cannot escape God's unconditional love. We may not embrace it. We may not accept it. We may reject it. But that's our choice. God still loves us everyone unconditionally, right? Everyone, everyone, say it with me, everyone. That was last week's message. God's grace and mercy is needed by all and is for all. The book of Jonah. And we should say thanks be to God for unconditional love. It is the promise of God to us and for us. It is the promise of God that brings hope, brings hope to us because the work of God's Spirit takes place and occurs beyond our knowledge in people's lives, and God can be at work without us ever knowing. It is my hope every day, as a believer, as a pastor, as a follower of Christ, because it's going on even now. But Israel asks, how are we to return? In verse 8, will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? Israel's question to God reflects their denial of robbing God. So God replies with specifics. You bring only a portion of the tithe and offering, not the whole tithe. The Lord is charging them with stinginess, with cheating, by failing to bring the whole tithe and the required offerings to the temple. In tithes and offerings, and in verse nine, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw, out the op not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. This is one of the most theologically rich passages in Malachi. Well, there are three themes here to draw our attention to. One, God speaks to Israel about their attitude toward giving when they were bringing sacrifices of lambs and calves to the altar to be sacrificed, they were not bringing the best, they were not bringing the first fruit, they were bringing the second best. Not the best. 
and they may have been suffering, so it might have been easy for them to guard jealously their meager stores, which is in turn reflected in their lack of care for their neighbor. They have a lack of liberality and generosity, which is a means of expressing love for God. Liberality and generosity. We are reminded by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, God loves a cheerful, cheerful giver. We're reminded in Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11, we are to give with an open hand and heart. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 25, do not be anxious about what you will wear or drink or what you will put on or what you will eat. The reason being that bringing a whole tithe and the whole offerings are not only expression of generosity, it is also a statement of trust in God. Because there is there's sometimes an internal conversation with the people of God that goes on. We know the word, but we sometimes say or question or maybe even complain, well, if I do this, will I have enough? And God says, if you trust me, there will be enough. Bringing offerings to the storehouse is not about the amount, it's about the trust. I had a man say to me one time, it was easier to give 10% when, my, when I made less. I found that a very fascinating conversation. But now that I make much more, it's a bigger check. Yes, it is, but it's still only 10% or whatever the percentage was. See, the issue is not about the amount. The issue is about the trust. And the trust is a statement about whether or not we believe God's faithfulness will be evident in our lives, whatever we give, with generosity and liberality. It has been my experience that people who give liberally and generously always have enough. People who give stingy never have enough. It's really quiet right now. The trust reflected in giving testifies also that we believe we are precious in God's sight, that we love God with all our heart, and God will not abandon God's care for us. A trust that God's love pours out with more provision for all of us than our needs and recognizes and gives witness to his provision and presence in our lives. Think about that dimension of trust. Trust springs from the awareness that we are desperately, deeply, unconditionally loved by God. And that we are precious in God's sight. 
and the abundance and blessing of God's provision. It is really difficult. I'm just going to make a confession today. It's really difficult for me to talk about abundance and blessing in an American cultural context. Because we have so much. Compared to most of the rest of the world, we have so much, so very, very much. In relationship to the need that exists in the rest of the world, we have too much. And some of you just repelled at that statement. But in a biblical context, we have been treated with greater abundance than most of the rest of the world can even imagine. And the abundance and blessing of God's provision can help us overcome our selfish and miserly tendencies and place our trust in God's love for us. And God's response to their question is to test him, to prove him, respond to his love with our love. This passage of scripture here in Isaiah chapter three is not intended to be a quid pro quo. In other words, if I give, God will give. If I give, God will give me more. You see, that's health and wealth gospel. It's a misappropriation of scripture. So there's no crude bargain of quid pro quo when Judah's managed to bring the full tithe Motivating and accompanying all true gifts to God is the pouring out of our life, our love, our all. And when we so present ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, it is surely true that heaven's richest bounties are heaped upon us. We find ourselves given graces anew every morning to numerous to count the glories of good creation, joy in daily work, patience, kindness, self-control in the fellowship we have with one another, release from guilt and anxiety and dread of death, and above all, peace with God who covers us with mercy as if we are covered with air. Those words from Elizabeth Actemeyer. Think about the generosity of God in relationship to the invitation to be generous with God. Think about all of the generous provisions we enjoy that go way beyond the monetary or the physical possession, but to the blessing of life itself, the blessing of fellowship and relationship with one another, the blessing of a new day, the blessing of the smile of a child. Later this afternoon, I'm going to get on a FaceTime call. 
I know how to use FaceTime. I don't need a 10-year-old. I'm going to get on a FaceTime call with Kate and Nora, who turned five today. And you know what's going to happen on that FaceTime call? Their joy and their smiles and their laughter are going to light up my life. And it will be the greatest blessing of this Papa's day. Now, you all are special. I love you, and you light up my life. <laughs> but Kate and Nora, they're in a special category. That is God's provision and blessing. More than I deserve, more than I could even have imagined. And it's true when I see Jade and Paxson in San Diego and I see Aubrey and Ben. Great joy. Lying behind this great promise is the purpose of God to establish God's reign over all human hearts from Abraham in Genesis 12, chapter 3, through Malachi. God's promise is to bring blessing to all families of the earth through Israel, God's chosen people. But the dispute goes on, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 3. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. This is God's final response to the charges levied against him by the people of Israel. And a remnant, a small group of obedient people who recognize God's divine kingship, who have found power and hope in God's kingship, respond as witnesses to God's faithfulness with a scroll of remembrance. They serve as the jury in this court case and find God to be faithful and Israel to be unfaithful. Their response underscores the reality that only the truly faithful can see life for what it really is. Who can see God's love and mercy for what it truly is? And to them, God gives a promise. They will be spared judgment and they will be distinguished from the wicked between those who serve God and those who do not. And so it is that Malachi gives a prophetic message and completes it with words of hope and love and mercy. And the message of Malachi has as much power and purpose today as it did 400 years before Christ. There is a day of reckoning coming, 
but the Messiah will make a way and has made a way. There's hope for us, friends. Our hope is in the Lord, and the call of Malachi is to love and trust God with all that we have, to love generously and freely and justly, for God is the God of provision to those that love God completely and without reservation. And so may it be true for each of us. Hear the word of the Lord. Obey the word of the Lord. And live in the word of the Lord with hope and love. Thanks be to God. Let's stand together. I invite you to receive this benediction. From Psalm 37, verses 3 through 6. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Amen and amen. God bless you. Go in hope.